0: It's episode 114 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Etsy's head of product design, Christina Goldschmidt. She joins us to discuss how embracing representation in neurodiversity across our teams can lead to better designed products. Christina, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's just a pleasure to have you here. I'm just such a big fan of Etsy. Can I just say that? I'm surprised how often I just find myself on the site just browsing and picking up little things. It's great.
1: Oh that's exactly what we want to hear we uh we live for that
0: yeah yeah it would you know it'd be wonderful to hear the sort sort of your 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 journey to get to etsy um how you got into a role like head of product design um i'm always interested how people sort of end up where they are
1: absolutely so you know it's kind of funny a lot of it actually started when i was young my mom was a manicurist she actually just retired this year during COVID times and i really saw the power of small businesses because i got my first job as a web designer in the mid 90s Mm. because my mom uh was the big connector i uh started to you know to build websites and uh hustle And my mom was able to connect me to a bunch of really cool women in the Washington DC area that were her clients who were like scratching their heads and saying, have you heard of this web thing? You know, they're getting their (laughs) nails done and they're talking out their problems as they're getting their nails done. And my mom was like, oh, my daughter can help you with that. (laughs) So from a very early age, I got this passion for the power of small business owners and what they could do for economic empowerment in a community. Mm. And um, so that's sort of like my first foray into really wanting to help small business owners was just seeing what my mom did for my career and sort of for our entire community right then and there. Um, And so... I was actually planning to be an anthropologist mm. and I was going to use the internet um also with geographic information systems to do predictive modeling of uh cultures and also some uh both anthropology and archaeology. Um but back in the mid 90s it was like too far out to think about technology in the social sciences. And so uh, when I got to university, everyone was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing with this internet thing? And uh, and then I was like, oh, well, I'll just continue to work on the internet, which was really exciting and um, and pivoted. and uh, And the pace of front-end development was moving so fast that I was like, I cannot keep up with this. And I just really, you know, at the time, in order to build and launch something, you had to also design it. You know, you were all things that all the time. Yep. And so I was like, okay, I think I actually greatly prefer the design side of this. And so I pivoted and got a degree in multimedia design. And sort of like, that's how I, I really, really started.
0: Uh, interesting. I bet, you know, the, the, the thread of anthropology and sort of where we've gone in user centered design and, and all of that, like there's so many parallels and probably a lot of maybe even cross-pollination around that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've actually, you know, held a job as a practicing researcher, uh, you know, a couple of years back. And that has been extremely valuable uh, to actually have that experience and to have that deep empathy. And to be able to help designers understand some advanced research procedures and to, you know, at previous times in my career, I've led both research and design teams. Um, at Etsy, we're very fortunate to, to be a, such a thriving organization where those are separate departments. And now I only lead uh, just the design team. But, um, but now it all has come together where people are like, oh, I see that. But you can imagine 15 years ago where people are like, wait, you started in anthropology and you're a designer? I don't see how that matches. But now we all see it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. A little bit of uh, maybe maturity in the industry. Uh, Hopefully, maybe I'm being overly optimistic. But the idea that like, oh, wait a minute, we're making things for people. Perhaps we could understand them. Right. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Yeah. But so, yeah, to go back to your original question, I'm sorry, I can really go off on (laughs) tangents. You know, I've uh, did the internet like dot com boom in the early 2000s, totally had the bust, (laughs) Um, but survived it living in D.C. and uh, rode out the wave. Uh, Actually, uh, after landing at the Discovery Channel and being becoming an art director there. Then we all got laid off um, in 2000, became a creative director at a law firm, which was fascinating. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, they still needed uh, web presences, but they also, I learned a lot about traditional advertising there, a ton about marketing and strategy and overall business. And after doing that for six years, was like nobody wants a creative director from a law firm. But I got all these great skills, moved to New York, decided the real uh, deal was like this intersection of business and design. So moved uh, here to get my MBA. Mm. So um, did that about sixteen years ago, and um, and I think that was a real turning point in my career where I was like, this I think is going to be where it's at. This sort of intersection of business value, and uh, really uh, the intersection of design. And and that was really transformative for
0: me. Uh, so that's really interesting because in the last episode that we recorded uh, of this podcast, we were talking about should designers code or that was one of the themes, right? Should I learn to code and things like that? Mm-hmm. And I said, I get questions like that all the time. You know, I also get questions from designers earlier in their career of like, would an MBA be valuable for me? Right, like, and you can see how they're like, they you know these different pathways that people are considering in their career, and how do I level up? Uh, it sounds like you you might be an advocate for that.
1: I, it, you know, it really depends. Yeah. For myself, it was very valuable. I think when you get into senior leadership, it can be extremely valuable. Yeah. Uh, a lot of designers, if you're not trying to become the head of a department. If that is not what you're looking for or to become at the director level, if you want to stay on the individual contributor track, I don't think it's really required. But if you really want to go hard into management, my whole life right now is really operations uh, and trying to think about business strategy. So it is really valuable for me. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of aspects, though, of my MBA that I don't necessarily use, I am, you know, I've done a lot of interesting things. Um, So my job right before Etsy, I worked at Accenture. I was in management consulting. And I was in their new ventures group where my job was to invent billion-dollar businesses. So you don't, you know, you don't want your client to become the next blockbuster video. (laughs) where They're like, oh, we could buy... Um, We could buy Netflix, but no, let's buy Circuit City instead, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where, you know, I was doing things like, oh, we have a telecommunications company, and we think the future for them would be to become a healthcare company by using the set-top box to help uh, become a, a series of sensors for aging at home, or helping a hospitality company invent a two-sided marketplace to not just be about travel, but about all of the types of services you want for right. when you're at home so that you can extend that relationship. Um, also, my, uh, after getting my MBA, I did a ton of work in experience design for financial services and insurance. I also did a digital attacker brand for uh, small commercial insurance. So those are right. the kinds of uh, businesses I helped to invent. And that was really great. And I wouldn't, those kinds of things, that kind of work becomes much more viable if you have an MBA, because you can trade in those kinds of spaces. But, you know, like, it's very easy for me to converse in that language of business. Right. Um, uh, So those are also potential career paths if you have an MBA, because I can, I can, you know, do evaluations, I can, you know, converse with any kind of business leaders. So that's another type of career path that becomes, you know, very much an option for you if you're considering an MBA.
0: Yeah, it is always about uh, the the language of your audience, right? Like, what is the vocabulary and the concepts? And how am I going to get this, this point across? I found that myself, in both technical situations, business situations, all, all over the place. Uh, so, at the top, I, I mentioned that we wanted to talk about neurodiversity. We have talked about lots of different types of representation in both the makeup of design and product and design teams, uh, or in the the way in which we in, are more inclusive in user research. Um, yeah. And understanding all the different ways that people might approach the products that we make. Um, mm-hmm. it, and I'm very interested in both of those things, uh, especially since there seems to be growing uh, evidence that it leads to better outcomes. Um, yeah. Even if something is base as, uh, you know companies are more profitable when they have more diverse teams right and, and things like that but neurodiversity is not something we have uh, we've talked about specifically uh and I would love to and I think perhaps a good place to start is frankly just definitions uh, what yeah. what really are we talking about when we say neurodiversity
1: absolutely so the term neurodiversity was first coined in the late uh 1990s by a sociologist named Judy Singer So she herself was on the autistic spectrum Mm -hmm. and she wanted a term to start to describe people who were, um, with conditions like ADHD, autism, and dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was sort of where this term started. Um, and it was all about sort of starting to describe sort of the, the sort of the vastness of the human condition, right? And so, but what's very interesting about it is it's grown to uh, sort of encompass everything around neurocognitive differences. And now in modern nomenclature, it's really talking about not just those forms of what may be considered sort of either what might be considered disabilities or disorders, but also going into also the world of, um, mental health issues too. Hmm. So it could encompass things like obsessive compulsive disorder or, um, you know, things like anxiety disorder, anything that might be not would be considered of the norm in society. That would be just how a a normal brain functions, you know, typically. Interesting. That's sort of like the the way that people are starting to use it as of the last couple of years. And so when this term was first used, you used to hear it a lot from parents who would talk mostly about their kids being on the autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. So I didn't used to actually think about this term for myself, but now I actually do identify with this term because I'm actually someone who has dyslexia. I am someone who actually has anxiety disorder and also complex post traumatic stress disorder, mm. so I sort of think of this term talking about me for all three of those things
0: so what what 's interesting in the term and thanks for sharing that by the way i, I really I, I really appreciate that and think we can have a, a really interesting conversation about that mm. um, but the the term is first of all having a classification that has seemingly less stigma attached to it, but mm. also I think a shift in a, a fundamental understanding of different people and different minds to say that some of these quote-unquote conditions don't need to be fixed, don't need to be solved, right? Like, yeah. um, if you go back 50 years, my uncle was, like, forced to be right-handed because, you know, being left-handed was a disorder and That's it was right. not normal. And so they, you know, and, and, and if we could apply that more broadly to say there's a whole bunch of different sort of uh there's a there's a big landscape where human cognition is and all of it is valuable and doesn't need to be fixed right
1: yeah absolutely and i i think that is really the modern thinking around this and people start to to get really nitpicky around some of the words right so some people will actually say neurodiversity is just the definition of uh we are all diverse and then they'll start to say well Let's talk about being neurodivergent or being neurotypical or neuroatypical, atypical. And so the terms are even starting to evolve in order to encompass this idea of not needing to uh, be fixed or sort of this larger spectrum of um, neurodiversity is just this concept that we are all diverse and that is the nature of, of humans in general.
0: Right. And that could even be uh, a thing that we select for as we're building teams. I find that really interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that that's actually what we're going to start to see, that people are – I've actually um, uh, started to hear people who are specifically starting to recruit for people who are neuroatypical or neurodiverse because they um, – one, they think that it's the right thing to do, and two, they're like it's it's going to make our our products better. And um, and you know, I've even heard people say it it gives the rest of our teams so much pride, and so it's driving better cultural effects across their companies. In addition to just helping the bottom line and bringing the skills in from the individuals, it's having larger cultural effects as well.
0: And that would be sort of affinity by the employees, uh, towards, a, an organization that shares their values, that feels exactly. progressive, that probably does well for, uh, keeping employees around.
1: Yeah, right. And in today's day and age, you know, we're all talking about the, the great resignation. I think you need
0: to, to think <laughs> about all
1: those concepts. <laughs>
0: This is the idea that uh, we're coming out of lockdown and everyone's like, I can change everything and I'm going to start with my job.
1: Right, exactly, exactly. Or
0: perhaps, I've, I was just reading this morning, this this idea of like many organizations say, all right, everybody back to the office. And a big percentage of people say, nope, um, yeah. I'm not coming back. I'm going to go work somewhere else that lets me... Uh, That embraces this new lifestyle. But anyway, all right, I have a bunch of questions about that. But let's take a little break before we do that. Uh, This episode is sponsored by our longtime friends, Pingdom from SolarWinds. Look, uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast will have a website. Uh, and with a, a lot of different purposes that those websites serve, it could be, you know, driving people to your product or collecting sales leads or maybe even making a global marketplace for handcrafted goods. Um, but regardless of what you do, there's all these critical transactions and they uh, sometimes they just fail. Systems go down, uh, and you lose business. Uh, And it's a terrible experience for your users and and the implications of your brand. So there is a solution, uh, and that is transaction monitoring from Pingdom. It starts at just $10 a month uh, and runs checks 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, And will alert you if like your cart checkout or or your forms or login pages, if any of those systems fail, you'll get an alert before they affect your customers and impact your business. Uh, Pingdom will notify you the moment there's a failure using SMS or email or... Slack, Ops Genie, PagerDuty, all of those systems can tie into Pingdom. Um, you can send different uh, alerts to different people based on the severity of the outage, customize who and how they're alerted. Don't let your users discover your problem. Uh, you should be the first to know. Super easy to get started. Go to pingdom.com slash relayfm. That's pingdom.com slash relayfm. If you go now, you can get a 30-day free trial without a credit card. If you do sign up, use the code presentable. You'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show, and all of Relay FM. All right, great. So we were talking about uh, building up uh, diverse teams uh, that might take a, a variety of different sort of cognitive abilities and things like that. So let's um, let's talk about that just a little bit. A lot of uh, what I've seen around embracing neurodiversity tends to be to focus on things like uh, the benefits of higher levels of concentration or better accuracy or strong recall. Those all seem around the autistic spectrum uh, and those abilities. I wonder, though, if we, if we, you know, if you think about the tropes of like, well, if he's got a head for business or she's very creative, she should be a designer. I wonder, like, if there are different types of neurodiversity that apply better to the creative practice. I don't even like that term creative, but the the design work that we do versus maybe more focused on systems and logic. I don't know.
1: Well, I, I can speak from my own perspective of being dyslexic, right? And so I actually think that dyslexia is, is um, something that actually prepares the brain for being creative and, uh, and that there's actually some new research out there. And there's a great book actually called the dyslexic advantage that wants to shift thinking from saying that this is a learning disability and actually says that this is actually a bunch of great gifts Uh and sure you might have difficulty reading and spelling, or you might have a couple of other disadvantages. Some people with dyslexia have difficulty with like rote memorization of multiplication tables. Or one of the things that it affects me with is serious crowd deafness. Like I have really bad crowd deafness, but I have excellent hearing. Like I can do that. Um, you can drop a bunch of change and I can tell you what the coins are. Which <laughs> wow. is like really funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they talk about in this book different uh types of reasoning so material interconnected narrative and dynamic and they're like if you can understand these different types it sets people up for great creativity and they're like more entrepreneurs a lot of great um uh designers uh surgeons lawyers All kinds of great creative fields actually really benefit from being dyslexic. So the real key is is that if someone can overcome and learn how to adapt to those original challenges of learning and get over those original issues, then can see their superpowers and then can actually build confidence. If you get those three things in place, the sky's the limit for you right? Yeah. Because then you can tap into like all of the great things that become available to you with this different type of brain processing, right? So you can do things like have really advanced 3d spatial reasoning and mechanical ability, or like, have really amazing ability to see narrative structures in a different way and understand metaphors differently. Or, um, you know, uh, one of the things that's been really helpful for me is I really understand personal details and remember um, narrative as well. So that's been really helpful in terms of um, user research. I remember user research stories and personal stories very well. And that helps me really connect and uh, get into user insights really well. And then also just sometimes even perceived differences in subtlety and patterns and pattern thinking. Hmm. So I actually went undiagnosed with my dyslexia until high school because I did really well on reading comprehension tests be- when I was um, in grade school because I understood the pattern of reading comprehension tests. Huh. Even though I didn't read well, I could understand, oh, it's going to ask me for this thing And then I could scan the paragraph for the thing and answer the question, even though I didn't read well. So like it like you can it's very fascinating sort of some of the ways that it works.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I would imagine there's also sort of categories of heightened sensitivity to the emotional state of others. Right. Yeah, and uh, the incredible value—not just in obviously in user research—I think that's Mm -hmm. um, that's a wonderful perception to have, but also perhaps in team management and Mm. and the idea that there are particular traits that might serve towards leadership.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I can't diagnose which parts of me go where. Sure but i actually think that uh some of my deeper empathy practices i sort of actually chalk up to my history with trauma and to ptsd and um when you have a history of trauma in your past uh and if you know you think about i, I don't want to get too scientific but there's a concept called the polyvagal theory of the brain um where you um have this innate ability to always be looking for danger. Mm. You do it subconsciously. You're constantly subconsciously looking for it. And there's this vagal nerve that uh, is connected to from your brain at your spine to the medulla oblongata. I don't know if people remember that term from the the movie Waterboy, but I, I think that that's the <laughs> that's <new right>. reference. <laughs> um, but so uh, you're you're constantly processing both people and the surroundings around you. Um, to understand if people and your surroundings are safe. And so as a, you know, a child uh, who had trauma in my background, I have this heightened, always looking for trauma, trying to figure out like, okay, is this safe? How do I respond? How am I going to actually behave in the situation? And do I need to adjust myself or react? And I think that that gives me an extra amounts of empathy that I'm always sort of leveraging and using and always thinking about other people and trying to respond. And so though, you know, dealing with PTSD is hard, sure, it actually does make me highly attuned to others and really empathetic to them and, and gives me this ability to really tune in and be really, really, really reactive to people. And I think when you're in um, a user research situation, people really feel it when they know that you really care about them and care about their opinions, right? And so I think I sort of go to that a little bit more than the dyslexia in that moment to say, oh, I think this is what's actually kicking in right now for me.
0: Right, right. No, I have long been uh, impressed, often overwhelmed by, uh, how people respond to that in user research, um, and how evident it is to have such, so few safe spaces to be able to express themselves in their, in, you know, that they would come to some company and, you know, do research and suddenly like, it's the first time that they've been heard in a long time. It's really remarkable.
1: Yeah. 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 And, and you see so many researchers that just have that gift, And how they're able to get people to walk through and open up. And and it's really remarkable. Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, you have worked for uh, a number of, let's just say, traditional and large organizations that might be a little bit slower moving than, say, a company like Etsy or, you know, more progressive companies. Uh, I wonder, you know, the the rise of employee resource groups, uh, how you get executives to Uh, not just tolerate, but actually sponsor people, uh, you know, and, and try to bring them up in the organization or there seems to be a lot uh, towards organizational change that needs to happen. And I wonder how you think about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one, I think it's really important to actually bring research Hmm. to bring evidence that says, if you actually provide resources to your employees that it will drive retention. So this is actually a moment when sort of that business school kicks in, right? Right. I know how to make a business case for something. Um, And that is really helpful for me to say, we need to provide these kinds of resources and that actually will make a difference. Luckily, working at a company like Etsy, uh, at the beginning of 2021, we were really progressive and they do a great job of doing engagement surveys and looking at the data. And we heard both in those engagement surveys and also from my own personal experience that uh, mental health needs were on the rise. And so we already had a great system of, of employee resource groups for Um, all kinds of different affinities, but we didn't have one to support mental health. Mm -hmm. And and so that was something that I helped to co-found this past year. And it was a very easy case to make at Etsy because we had data from something like an employee engagement survey. And so that's the first thing that you can do is actually get survey data. Um, from your actual constituencies at the company.
0: Yeah. And
1: then also to go externally to lots of uh, nonprofits will provide information around how these sorts of things will help. I think the next area where we're trying to go um, is actually to to create an, an ERG around um, disability, too. That's probably uh, the next one that we're trying to do. Um, one, it'll actually make us better from an overall uh, accessibility practice at Etsy. And then also it will just help to foster this larger sense of diversity and inclusion.
0: Interesting. Well. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you, in that like focus on mental health and mental well-being, it seems like it could get a little blurry between what we're talking about with neurodiversity and things that have traditionally been called diagnoses. Right. And what happens to a lot of people that may be more neurotypical, but are experiencing increased anxiety, burnout and things like that? Is that like when I read about like an employee resource group for mental health, it feels like those things get a little blurry. And I wonder if that dilutes a bit this notion of uh, of neurodiversity or not. I don't know.
1: I think that they're a little bit different, right? I can't say whether or not one group is more predisposed to burnout versus the other because I'm not a sure. uh, practicing scientist or, or medical professional. Um, I will say the, I feel like personally, the role of an employee resource group is to provide um, resources, right? Um, and so it, it's really there to provide resources and advocacy is how I, I view it. And so, everything that we can do is to provide those resources and advocacy to help uh, combat burnout and to provide awareness around burnout and tools to help people manage burnout. Uh, So, in terms of neurodiversity, I think we're also uh, providing spaces for people to specifically also think about their forms of neurodiversity or um, where, you know, and also create community around it. So, You know, I make a point of speaking openly about the conditions that I I have because I think it uh, helps to remove the stigma. Right. And I, you know, for a long time, people, specifically in business, were afraid to to say, "Hey, I'm dyslexic," or "Hey, I suffer from these mental health issues," because we were afraid that people would not take us seriously and. And there's all this stigma, you know, in the Western world, or actually, I think across the globe around mental health, health. And really, it feels like we're at this tipping point, especially right now with the Olympics, um, where people are actively talking about mental health and athletes performance, but it's still not really talked about in the world of business, right? You know, it's really focused on sports and Prince Harry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, it's interesting that like, it, it could, this could be a tipping point. I, I could imagine in my more optimistic version of the world where this would be something like, like your particular neurological makeup is something you'd want to put on your CV, you know, as like, I have this level of self-awareness. I know what I'm really good at. Is that a fit for what you're looking for? You know? And yeah, yeah that's, yeah. that's really interesting. I wonder. I wonder how far we, or, or what what else needs to change to really get people to to, uh, to have those conversations and to feel safe about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really interesting provocation. Um, you know, I think right now people are probably scared because they're worried about, am I going to look expensive in terms of accommodations? Mm. And so they don't want to necessarily disclose up front, Right. Um, because they're worried, is this going to make me look like I'm going to want to take extra time off or that I'm going to need extra equipment or, um, you know, previous to 2020 that I'm going to want to work remote. Right. Right. Like, uh, whereas I think a lot of all of that is changing and, you know, like something that's really important for being dyslexic is having the ability to have things read to me. And so, uh, right now, there are those kinds of accessibility tools built into Chrome. And so I don't need a screen reader. i If I want something red, I can turn on that that like in Chrome. and like I can get something read to me if I need it. so that that solves a lot of any cost implications that yeah. one would worry about, right.
0: yeah. But if we take like a you know a two or three decade uh, view on it uh, uh, on things like the changes that have happened to business based on uh, the ADA right and yeah, and physically yeah. disabled uh, people in the workplace and our accommodations for that like fundamentally changed architecture of business like yes. of, of of actual buildings like uh, to worry about cost uh, and accommodation I think is is a great thing to focus on for sure because we've done it before
1: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think that there's a, uh, that now really again is the tipping point and that there's a, a bright future where we can look at these things again as superpowers and gifts as opposed to hindrances.
0: Yeah. And it could probably lead to a competitive advantage in recruiting. As we've said before, putting it right in the job descriptions um, and, and explicitly not just we accommodate, but like explicitly we celebrate, we look for this kind of diversity as we do in in, any other, uh, any other places. Interesting. That's great. Where can people find out more? It sounds like that's a, a, a lot. Maybe they, uh, you've got some resources or they could follow you or tell, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that there's, as I was saying, you know, there are a couple of places that I would suggest. So, um, understood.org is a great organization that I think is working to change this culture. I would suggest that they follow that. The Dyslexic Advantage is a great book. Um, You can definitely follow me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Christina on UX is my handle there. Um, And so I I clearly uh, do a lot of uh, speaking and writing about this topic. I'm very passionate about it. Um, So those would be where I would suggest.
0: Great. Awesome. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, This has been a fantastic conversation. I've learned a lot. Um, I appreciate you being here so much, Christina. Thank you.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me.